Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says, On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Verse 27, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 28, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Lord, as we come before your word, we ask that you would just illuminate these verses to us. That you'd show us Christ. You'd show us grace. You'd show us the law. You'd show us the own depravity in our own hearts, Lord, and our need for you. As we already sung, to fill us up to overflowing. That you would conform us into the image of Christ Jesus. In the name of Jesus, amen. The most critical question that can be asked was asked by this expert of the law. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Contrary to what everybody else says, you are an eternal being. And you, the where you will spend eternity is one of two places. You will either spend it in front of God, worshiping and praising, serving Him in eternal life, which is beyond the greatest thing you could ever imagine. It's what you were created to do and to be and to, to do, to glorify God in His presence. You either spend your life there or eternally separated from God in the lake of fire, which is hell, which is the absence, so to speak, of His presence, if that were possible. That is the two roads where all of humanity is going. I remember going to a Chargers game uh, you know, as a, as a younger man, and uh, I know it's Chargers game, it's horrible. But I, I look out, and there were seventy, eighty thousand people standing there. And I remember thinking in my mind, all of these people are going. Are, are they saved? How many people know the Lord? We're all sitting here chanting around this bowl of violence, and how many of us, you know, in frustration? But how many of us are truly? Are, are, they know the Lord. I mean, it's the most serious question we can ask. And driving home in, in traffic of, of eight lanes on this side and eight lanes on that side, and it's bumper to bumper, and you're sitting there just looking at all these people going, where are they going? How many people are even thinking about the afterlife? You know, I love that illustration uh, Francis Chan has, but he, he has a rope that goes all the way off stage, and he has the, one little tip of the rope is painted red, and he goes like, this is your life. And this is eternity, if it were a timeline, it's not. But, and we're all focused on, okay, I'm going to work here, and then I'm going to save for here. And how we live now determines what happens for that. That's the reality of it. How, must, how do we inherit eternal life? What a, what a profound question. Now, the man who asked this question, who was an expert in the law of Moses, the Old Testament, he knew the Ten Commandments back and forth. He knew the Levitical law. He knew all the, the accoutrements, of, 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 of the little details and all the tiny things of all the law. And there was a lot. Now, he stood up and he detests Jesus, it says. Now, we don't know his motives. Perhaps he is, 
he's agreeing with them and, 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 and the gospel is being preached to his heart and he's responding and saying, hey, I really I want to know if you, what you say matches up against the law. My guess is it's something like that. Or he was being um, antagonistic. One or the other, we, we don't really exactly know what his motives were. But we do know that he was that expert in the law. And no doubt, hearing Jesus' message of the kingdom of God, that men must repent and believe and upon Jesus Christ, and that he was the Messiah, so to speak. You could see it clearly through his teachings, even though he didn't publicly proclaim it yet. But he wanted challenging Jesus' knowledge. He was challenging Jesus' knowledge. But my guess is that he's going to see if what Jesus says about eternal life lines up with the Scriptures. Because if it doesn't line up the Scriptures, then forget it. And that's important. Does it line up with the law of Moses? And as a Jew, this was their whole worldview. So Jesus responds to this lawyer's question with a question of his own. Verse 26 says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? What, what's, what's your reading of it? And the man answers. He gives this summary. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Jesus said, that's correct. Do that and you will live. You'll live. You'll have eternal life. If you do those things, you will live. You will have eternal life. Do you know that? There's only one problem. Can anybody guess what that problem is? How many of you are 10 for 10 on those? Just Pablo. Cool. (laughs) Go smack him. Now, the the scribe, he's quoting. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting the Ten Commandments. And the first part of what he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, is from Deuteronomy 6, 5. That's part of what the Jews called the Shema, and it was repeated twice daily. And that's just a summary of the first part, the first basically four commandments of the Ten Commandments, to love God with everything, not partially, not compartmentally, with all you got. Really, that, that's with everything, with, with, with your heart, with your soul, with your strength, with your mind. Some of us, you know, we go, and I love the Lord with my heart. You know, I, I feel for Him. You know, that's great. But what about what you do? What about your strength? What about your body? What about your soul, your very being? What about your mind, how you think and what you do? Do you love God that way? You see how far short we fall so quickly. The second part summarizes the remaining six commandments when the Lord says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's basically what he's saying, which is taken from Leviticus 19.18. So to love God supremely and to love your neighbor as yourselves is what the law demands for a person to have life. And if we do this, if you do this, lawyer, you will live. The problem is we don't and can't. You have to do it perfectly. How many lies does it take to make you a liar? One, how many times do you break the rules for you to be a rule breaker? See, God's God's standard is 100% absolute perfection. And because we all blow it, we assume God's going to grade on a curve. He doesn't. It's not California where people just keep breaking the laws and they change it to conform to the laws so nobody's breaking the laws. Amen? 
He's perfect. He says, don't lie. He means don't lie. If you lie, you die. He's serious about it. God is holy. He's not kidding around. That is his personality. It does not change. And yet at the same time, God is a God of love. So where does the justice of God and the love of God meet when he has to execute justice because of lawbreakers like me and like you? He has to, he can't let it go by. It's against his very nature's character. The whole world would go implode. He has to. And so where does that justice get met out? Where do the innocent, no, no, no one's innocent, where do people find forgiveness? That's what we preach, the cross of Christ. That's where we're going today, by the way. Jesus is not saying that someone is capable of keeping the law perfectly, loving God at all times in our heart and our soul and strength and mind and loving our neighbors and ourselves at all times. Yet that is the standard. You see, the law does not, the law of God does not make a way to where we can have salvation. It points that we break it. Amen? What paint? Do not touch. What do we all want to do? I want to see if it's wet. I can't help it. I'm going to touch that paint. I'm going to find out it's wet. Do not lie. What, do you want to, what, what does it reveal about us? For those of us in Walla Walla, go, driving down to Morrison slash whatever they keep calling this thing, it's like 25, then 30, 35, then 20, then 35. And you're just like, I'm going to average it out. <laughs> Anybody else? <clears throat> Lawbreakers, all of you. Guilty. You think a cop's going to sit there and go, oh, well, that makes sense. <laughs> now, as a person, he might, but guess what? You've broken the law. And he has every, he has the authority and the responsibility to be impartial and to write you a ticket for being a lawbreaker. Now, I love it when they show grace, don't you? <laughs> Praise the Lord. I th- I'm thankful for that. I once had a $430 burrito. <laughs> but I won't go there. <laughs> the law, man, it doesn't care. Parked in a handicapped spot because they put sauce on my burrito. See the flesh. Just... Sorry, handicapped people. I know. I'm guilty. I feel it. But the law doesn't give eternal life. The law does not give eternal life. It shows us that we're unable to obtain it by our good works or whatever efforts we have because we fail to keep the law perfectly no matter how hard we try. Paul builds this case up in Romans. If you're reading Romans, this is this whole whole uh, gamut. This is, he starts with creation and general revelation. He talks to Gentiles and he talks to Jews and he talks to all these people and he's funneling down to just basically say everybody is guilty before God. And so what are we to do? And that's kind of how he's going. But in chapter 3, Paul says in verse 19, now we all know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held to accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be ter- declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscience of our sin. Do not touch. I want to touch. It shows me something about myself. Amen? The law is right, it is good, it is holy, it's perfect, it doesn't need to be changed. What needs to be changed about make no other gods, or don't murder other people, or don't covet, or don't steal, or don't lie? Nothing. Those are all virtues, those all represent God's holy character and who He is. 
And Jesus says to him, keep these things and you will live. Now, instantly, Jesus gives this man a task that he cannot possibly do. And he can't perfectly love God in any way. He can't perfectly love his neighbor. He can try. And so this man is well aware of what the law requires, being a lawyer, and the law condemns him. He stands condemned because he knows the standard that he does not meet. When you stand condemned before the law, you have two opportunities. You have one to try to justify yourself, or number two to say, have mercy upon me, I'm guilty. Amen? It's what you have. What does this man try to do? He tries to justify himself. You know, we can either have that heart of humility when we find ourselves cornered by the law of God or, and cry out saying, Jesus, I can't do this. I, I know what you say. I just, I'm incapable of doing it. Help me. I'm so wretched. Will you, will you cleanse me? And that's what it is to be poor in spirit. That's what the law does. The Holy Spirit brings, brings us into the conviction of God. And somehow, I think we have it wrong when we are trying to, you know, um, coerce people into the kingdom by coolness. You know what I mean? I think we can often just circumvent the, the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice the very first thing I talked about was hell. Amen? It's not something I enjoy. It's something we fear. We don't want that. What are people saved from? That, we're saved from eternal separation from God. This is not a joke. Be bold about it. Realize and be thankful that we're saved from it and walk in holiness and, and crying out before the Lord and all that type of stuff. But I think we can often just preach this, just pedal softness, you know, and, and kind of, yeah, God's like your friend. He's your neighbor and stuff. Yeah, but He's also like a consuming fire. And he sent his holy son to die for his enemies, of whom I am one. I was one. And unless people repent and believe because of God's demonstrated love in Christ Jesus, they have no hope. That's it. That's hard. But when you're confronted with that, with that holiness of God, when you're confronted, when you realize those things, you have one or two ways to go within your heart. You can either say, well, you know, you can start looking for little legal examples of why you're right. Any of you ever been married? What you should do, love your wife? Well, what does that look like? Well, I take out the trash, check. Oh, come on. You know, love, and just love, heart, mind, body, soul, just do it. You know, we get kind of off track, like me right now. But you see, pride, the pride rears up in this guy. See, humility. See, I'm working on it. The very fact that I mentioned it shows I'm humble. <laughs> but you see, pride it rears up in this man like it does for so many of us, right? When we hear the righteous standard of God, how we should love Him, how we should love one another, we see it, we feel it, we hear it preached, Right? Yet we don't, instead of that broken spirit that says, God, help me, we allow the pride to come in and shields go up like this lawyer. Jesus said, do this and you will live. And what happens? Verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? 
You know, he's probably going, yeah, I love God pretty good. I keep all the laws, all that great stuff. Neighbor, well, technically, who's my neighbor? Maybe he has an issue with his neighbor. Who knows what's going on? Well, who's my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, notice how he's going he's to answer this. Well, we'll quick, we'll quickly. Who is my neighbor? You, you know, I've, I've found it true in my own life that when I see a, a big gap between who I am and who God calls me to be, and I experience that conviction of the Holy Spirit, I can begin to get legal with the Lord in an attempt to justify myself, you know? I get to get legal with the Lord, um, you know, to try to see if I can meet all the little loopholes and get around stuff instead of getting the heart of it. You know, love my neighbor? Well, define my neighbor for me. What does that mean? Of course I do, you know? And Jesus starts replying here in verse 30, and he really just starts to hone in, and he's really hitting the heart of this man. Notice he just doesn't give him technical knowledge. He gives him a story to get his mind and his heart to think. So verse 30 says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he, was, when he was attacked by robbers, and they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Jericho sits about 9, 000, no, sorry, 900 feet below sea level and is about 15 miles away from Jerusalem, which sits about 2,500 2, feet. And so it's a trek down as you go down to Jerusalem. There's a lot of rocks in places I've been around the area. And uh, it's just, it, you know, there's a lot of places for robbers. And so this is totally conceivable um, as people are thinking about this, scenarios where people would be ransacked on the road. And Jesus tells the story of who was a man who was attacked along the way and he was left naked and for dead, totally helpless. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going by that same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by the other, uh, the other side. And so to a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him passed by the other side. Now, a priest was a servant of the Lord. He offered sacrifices daily for the people and the sins of the people, you know, going before the Lord. And he should embody what it means to be a righteous person before God. Don't you, don't you agree? I mean, if anybody should be helping someone, that's who it should be. And the law commands that he should be helping those who can't help themselves. Basically, he should be helping him. That's what the law demands. And yet we see this religious leader fail to love God because he failed to love his fellow man. Then right after him comes a Levite. A Levite would be those assisting. Um, the priest would come from the tribe of, of Levites, but the Levites who were not in the priesthood were serving alongside of them, and they had rotations and such, stuff that I don't want to get into right now. But he knows the law. He knows all these things. He should have done it, but he didn't. He went on the other side. He avoided him. So the two people who knew God's law, who knew the commandments in and out, they did not do what the law required. And that's a bummer. I, I can relate with that sometimes. Amen? But, verse 33, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. So the third person come by was a Samaritan, a Gentile. And believe me, when the word Samaritan came out of Jesus' mouth, you know that the scribe just went, Ugh. they did not like the Samaritans in general. 
As we discussed in weeks past, the Samaritans had Jewish blood in them, that they were the result of the tribes of northern Israel who had intermarried with the Assyrians after the invasion of the Assyrians in northern Israel in 722 uh, B.C. And because the Samaritans had a mixture of Judaism and paganism all mixed together, they had this kind of just weird religion that was a hybrid of, of Judaism. They rejected the temple being in Jerusalem. They said, we're going to set up our own <clears throat> worship system in the north which was on Mount Gerasim, which was most likely the reference of John 4 with the woman at the well. We worship at our mountain. You worship in Jerusalem. Jesus said, you don't know what you're doing. Um, basically, you can read that in John 4. But Jesus makes the point that the Samaritan Gentile, not a Jewish priest or a Levite, was the one who stopped and helped this man in need. Not just stopping, but loving his enemy. Loving his neighbor as himself. He took pity on him. He poured wine and oil on his wounds and bandaged them. He brought him to an inn. He stayed with him overnight to make sure he was okay. He paid the innkeeper enough money, depending on the place, so he could be taken care of and stay there from anywhere from three weeks to a month, some commentators say, about how much that would be at that time. So he said, whatever else was owed, he would pay when he came back. Now tell me, is that not loving your neighbor as yourself? Wouldn't you do that to yourself? And Jesus asked in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go do the same. The Holy Spirit had revealed something within this man's heart where he thought that he could, and he was someone who loved his neighbor, found out what? That he did not. That he actually, there were people that he would not love because they were enemies or whatever it might be. Who's that person in your life? Are they in this room? Let's start here. How about in your family? How about in your, at your workplace? Got a boss that drives you nuts? Got a coworker that doesn't do the work, all that stuff? How can you love them? Not sit there and say what they're doing is okay. It's not what we're asking. How do you love? How do you show God's love? Remember when you were an enemy of God? You kind of remember that? Remember what God did to you? How he kind of gave you air to breathe? Gave you life and a heartbeat? gave you food, gave you people around you, family, all these types of things. God provided and loved you. When you were brokenhearted and left alone, He came and brought you to His Son. Go and do likewise. The lawyer had asked, who is his neighbor? And Jesus told him, go be a neighbor. It's interesting. Go love. Even your enemies, even Gentiles, even a Samaritan. Now, the context, again, is how a person receives eternal life. That was the big question. The answer is not keep the law. The answer is not keep the law. The answer is God save me. God save me. I do not. I've failed to love you. I've failed to love my neighbor. Have mercy upon me. Save me. 
And Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, Do you not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets? I have come to fulfill them. You see, Jesus is the one who fulfills the law. Jesus is the one who does what we cannot. Jesus is the only one who fulfilled the law perfectly without flaw. That is, that is our only hope. We look to Him. He loved God perfectly in heart and soul and strength and mind. He did what you cannot, what I cannot. Amen? He loved the unlovable. That's me, that's you. He loved us fiercely. Laying down His life for us, wounded and beaten through and through because of our sin. He died upon a cross to pay the righteous requirement that the law demands. The soul that sins shall die. God did not change the law. He kept it. And there must be a penalty. And He poured it out upon Christ for those who would believe. He died in our place that the wrath of God would be satisfied. And through faith in Christ, we're forgiven of our sins and we're born again. How many of you need to be born again? You sense it in your heart. You know you can't love God. You know you can't love your neighbor. You can't love your family. You just fall short. You need to be born again. The old life doesn't work anymore. You can't do it. The law is heavy upon you. You, you feel the weight of it, and it's driving you. It's funneling you to a Savior, one who will not only save you from yourself, but then make you new and fill you with this Holy Spirit, and you'll be born again, and now you have the ability and the power because Christ now resides in you to live that life you never could live. To love God with everything as He teaches you to do that daily. I would encourage you to read through Romans 8 and go deeper in that. Not just Romans 8, Romans 1 through 8. Just all of Romans, just do it. Enjoy. But Romans 8, life by the Spirit. What does that mean? It's the denial of the flesh and alive to God by faith. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. The life I live now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's how we now live in Christ. Same way we came to him, on our knees and thankful. Now empower me to live today. You need Christ as your Savior this morning, call out to Him. He in no way will cast you aside. That God who is just and who has that fiery hell is also the God who loves intensely and sent His own Son to die on your behalf. Call out to Him. He will show you mercy. And if you're feeling that heat, that's the Holy Spirit. Do not deny Him. Turn to Him and call out to Him and lay down all that crud, the sin, and He will take it. That's why you came. Gosh, I want to finish. Let's do it. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said, but Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him asking, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. You know, as believers 
who desire to glorify God by loving and obeying Jesus Christ, we can often find ourselves struggling with priorities. Anybody struggling with priorities in their life? And as we've been seeing from the disciples, as we've been reading through Luke, the lawyer here to these dear sisters, every one of them is being redirected by the Lord to the priorities of the kingdom. Jesus had come into the house of Martha, and she obviously has this hospitable heart. She wants to give the Lord her best. He wants this to be a great dining experience or whatever it was. And, and he's in her home, and, and she just wants to make it great. She sought to honor him with all the preparations that she had made. And so you can just see Martha going crazy. Any of you Marthas out there going crazy, getting things in order, cleaning the home. Um, the homemade meal is being prepared. And this is really big to have Jesus in our home. And so you can just imagine the stress and the pressure to make everything just right. Anyone relating? And while she's working so hard, Jesus is there in her house and teaching and speaking about the kingdom. And Mary, Martha's sister, is sitting there watching football. You know, I mean, not watching football. But she's sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus listening to him. And Martha, you can just imagine that she's just giving this look to her sister every couple minutes, like, Mrah. you know, she's in their kitchen, just moving stuff around. She's probably just slamming the oven, whatever it is going on, trying to get someone's attention. Don't you see me? You know, I'm, I'm working over here and I'm by myself. Anybody ever been in that situation where you're frustrated that you're alone and no one's helping you out and everybody else should be, but they're doing fun things? you're doing all the work. Anybody else got that? <laughs> nope. All the men want to leave now. <laughs> I'm just kidding. And so she says in an attempt to get Jesus to get her sister in the kitchen, Lord, whatever it might be, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work for myself? I mean, whoa. Jesus, don't you care? Feel the weight of that one? I love the Bible. It doesn't make a difference if you're a disciple. It doesn't make a difference if you're the highest on, on the religious chain, so to speak, or the lowest, lowest rung. You just, it just lays us all bare. We all blow it, <laughs> so to speak. You know, sometimes we can get frustrated with the Lord even when we're serving Him. Anyone else? When we're working hard, we're loving our families, all those things, and we get frustrated with God. And because things aren't going in the way that we had planned, and because someone isn't doing what the things that they should be doing according to us and according to our plan, we often think that God doesn't care. God does care, always has, always will. But sometimes our frustrations in serving the Lord and in life, I might add, are because our priorities are not God's. Our priorities are not God's. Can I repeat that? Our priorities are not God's. Are your priorities God's priorities? Martha assumed that the preparation and the work is what pleased the Lord. You know, I find this true about worship. We assume that what I want to give what God is what God requires. Instead of going to say, God, what do you want? How do I live my life? How do you want to be worshipped? How should I give? How should I spend my time? How should I serve? Not, hey, I want to do this, and that's how I guide my life. That's, that's not the cross. It's actually when we say, Lord, your will, but not my will, that we actually find joy. 
not what Martha's experiencing right here. Martha found out what she was doing wasn't the Lord's focus. Verse 40 tells us that she was distracted. Anyone want to underline that verse? Anybody distracted? And because her priorities were not the Lord's, she was angry and upset and was critical of her sister because her plans weren't working out. I wonder what it would have looked like if Martha's plan was working out. Jesus would be in the kitchen. Or, you know, he'd be taking care of stuff, and the, the focus of everything was about eating. The focus of everything is about something. And you'll find that when your life and priorities are not lined up with the Lord's, there will be a lack of peace in your life. Even when you think you're doing it for the Lord. If you find yourself in that situation, it's time to put it on pause. And another thing is that Martha tried to pull Mary away from the Lord. Pretty interesting, huh? When our priorities are out of whack, when we're not having the Lord's, we're going to end up pulling others away from, from the, the proper priorities of, of being in front of the Lord, of serving the Lord in the way that God's called them to. She even tells God what to do. Get her to help me. Any of you have that prayer life? God, make them change. Make them do this and that. I want them to just... Get in the kitchen. You know, I mean, anybody had one of those lately? I know that prayer has been prayed, for, prayed over me <laughs> by my children. I was kidding. You know, if you're ever in that place where you're trying to, trying, thinking that God doesn't care, when you're thinking that God doesn't care and you're critical of someone else and you're telling God what he should do, you can almost guarantee that your priorities are not the Lord's. You're out of step with the Spirit. Even though you might be thinking what you're doing is of the Spirit, it's not. You're out of, you're out of connection with the Lord. And so I just think Jesus is so kind with Martha. Jesus is so kind with her. You know, look what he says in verse 41. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are so worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. I don't need that much. You're going crazy. But really, indeed, one thing is needed. Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. Is that you this morning, church? Are you worried and upset about many things? You got a lot on your plate. You got your spinning 50 things at a time. Your heart is perplexed. You're overwhelmed. Anybody there this morning? Few things are needed, only one. What is that? What's the one thing that's needed? Verse 42, and Mary has chosen that what is better and it will not be taken away from her. Mary has chosen what is better. There are few things we can be doing. Uh, you know, there are many things that we can be doing and they're all good, right? We've got a lot of good things going on. Preparing dinner, uh, you know, experiencing for Jesus was great, but it wasn't what was best. It wasn't what was best. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to Jesus. In this culture of busyness, of work, of school, of sports, of entertainment, of church business too, all of us serving Jesus, right? 
to make the place look great, worship music, ushering, cleaning, children's ministry. I mean, there's, the list goes on and on, the building and grounds. I mean, all these are for the Lord and there's people. They're all good things, are they not? But how many of us are just worried and we're upset and we're just critical in the midst of it? How many of us have just in life, how many of us are, are like that? There's a better way. When is the last time that you just sat at the feet of Jesus? You opened the word and said, Lord, I'm here. Speak to me. You just sat with him in his presence. Lord, this is what I'm going, what's going on. What do you want me to do? These are the burdens of my heart. Am I marthing out here? What's going on? You know? And saying, Lord, what do you think? And Lord, I love you. Lord, thank you. You see, our priorities get out of whack when we put doing above being doing above being. But when we sit at the feet of Jesus, when we're, then we are ready to go and serve Him with the heart and the strength and the joy and the perspective and the priority that, that is His. And so quickly, we are trying to be Christians without being with Christ. You know what I mean? It doesn't work. You get frustrated and the world looks at you and goes, well, that's ugly. I don't want any part of that. I'm guilty. But it changes from doing this and doing that for Jesus to it's because of Jesus that I'm doing this and that when you spend time in his presence. Amen? So precious sheep of the great shepherd, um, lie down in the green pastures. He says he makes me lie down. Lie down in the green pastures and next to the still waters. Let him restore your soul this week. Spend time with your great God and your creator. Don't think that this life is meant to be lived for Him, but with Him, because of Him. Let Him restore your soul. And like Mary, the words He imparts to you are eternal and will not be taken away, like the dinner. Amen? So, whether it's the inability to love God in our, as, in our neighbor as ourself, or whether it's just being in the Lord, now too busy and all this type of stuff. The answer is where it's always been. Go to Jesus. Spend time with Him. Hear from Him. Let Him speak to you and direct your soul. And you'll have joy. You'll have suffering. Amen? But we will also have glory. Amen? Lord God, we love you. We want to love you practically in every area of our lives. And so will you forgive us, Lord, where we have not loved our neighbors, our spouses, Lord, our kids, our bosses, our employees, Lord, our family, our enemies. Lord, will you make us like you in this area? Teach us and show us what to do. We're your sheep. We just need your help, Lord. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would have that love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control, all the others, Lord. And may we be filled 
with the gospel. We'd be ready to share it at every moment. And that it would be true in the hearing of the people, not only because of the words that are said, but of how we represent you and live it out. So, Lord, we give you this week. We ask for your blessing upon not only our fellowship, Lord, but this, this valley and beyond as we go out light in the darkness. In the name of Jesus, amen.